Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome. Welcome to tonight's event on building a caring economy. We are witnessing an incredible moment in history. On the one hand, we are in the mid middle of a global crisis, a crisis of care, a deficit of care, which is laid bare by a global health emergency. But on the other hand, we're also in a very hopeful moment, a moment that we could really seize to overturn the values that for decades have brought us relentless rising global inequalities. Values that have prioritized profit over people, individual success and progress over care of the collective, austerity measures, deregulation, privatization over nurturing and protecting our common well-being independence, autonomy, and resilience over our interdependency, relatedness, and our fragility. At this critical juncture, where we could either continue on the same path of exacerbating global inequalities or change the terms of the debate, this evening, we are going to play the to, to, we're going to be a part of that process of trying to make history in which valuing care is placed at the center of our economy and society. Now, before those of you who think that this is a session about care homes and care workers and tune out, let me at the outset say that the vision of care we will be discussing today is ambitious and visionary. It's broad and it's radical. It involves each and every one of us together. It is a means to entirely transform how we think about the economy to bring about a more egalitarian world, a more caring world. So let me welcome you all to the London School of Economics and Political Science, to the International Inequalities Institute, the III. I'm Alpha Shah, I'm an Associate Professor of Anthropology here at the LSE and also convener of a research theme on the global economies of care at the International Inequalities Institute. And I'm gonna chair this event today on building a caring economy. Before we proceed, let me remind you that centering care at the heart of our economy and society is not at all a new concern Feminists have long been drawing our attention to it, to it. Indeed, they've been fighting for it. Yet their arguments have been sidelined. Care continues to be mistakenly seen as women's work or the work of care professionals, care workers who are racialized. Care has not only been devalued, but also stigmatized. It has taken a global pandemic the COVID-19 pandemic, which we are amiss, to bring discussions and concerns of care center stage. It's not just the clapping for our NHS workers that we did on Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. that has forced us to acknowledge the crucial role that care plays in our lives. We have also seen the devastation that years of austerity measures have brought to our public health systems and even more our provision of social care. And we have witnessed the crisis we face within our own families when we can't send our children to nursery or school, do both all the caring work and our day jobs at the same time. The COVID pandemic has made us realize how central care is to the economy and society, how gendered and racialized it is, and shown us how we have neglected the role it plays. 
This is an incredible time to seize the moment to not only value our care workers and give them proper pay and terms and conditions of work beyond clapping for them, but to, in fact, place care at the very centre of the economy. So we feel extremely privileged here at the London School of Economics International Inequalities Institute to host a discussion today with the authors of three outstanding, powerful interventions that have just been published, which seek to do exactly that, to rebuild our economy and society with care at its center. One book, one manifesto, and one major report, which is a call to action. Before introducing them and their authors, let me note that all of these magnificent interventions began life way before this COVID crisis unfolded. I do so to reiterate the point that the issues they address that we will discuss today were with us well before this pandemic. It's just that now, we cannot ignore them. We cannot ignore the crisis of care that highlight. In some ways then, all of these three publications have proven to be prophetic. The first is Madeleine Bunting's Labor of, Labors of Love, The Crisis of Care. Madeleine is an award-winning writer who worked for many years for The Guardian as a columnist and as an associate editor. In The Labours of Love, she deftly puts her excellent journalistic expertise to use into digging into the nooks and crannies of the world of care. She exposes the lives and working conditions of social care workers, NHS nurses and GPs across the public, private and charitable sectors. She moves from the intimate care given, the pressures of work and exploitation, the stifling bureaucracy and paperwork to the big picture. From the shocking shortfall of nurses we face in the UK, simply because they're not paid enough, to the financialization of care homes affordable in any case to a small minority. The next two contributions move beyond the world of social care and care workers to thinking about why and how we need to recenter the values of care in the economy and society itself, from our relations with each other to the environment. And while they lay out the problems of the present, they are visionary, radical, and provide a path for the future. They are also path-breaking because care is embedded in their very writing for they are prepared through a collective participatory endeavor. There is the Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence, published by the Care Collective, a remarkable group of five authors from different disciplinary backgrounds. They are represented today by Professor Lynn Siegel, who is an anniversary professor of psychology and gender studies at Birkbeck, University of London. The Care Manifesto is exactly what it says, a manifesto, an exercise in rethinking collective life and imagining a new future. It's a wonderful map to how we must change the world from our ideas of kinship to our care of the planet itself. It, it charts how we must invest in time, infrastructure and resources for care, but also how we, we must challenge what it is that we value, how we treat each other and our common resources. 
The final intervention today is the Commission on a Gender Equal Economy Women's Budget Group Report called Creating a Caring Economy. It is today represented by Professor Diane Elson, who is Chair of the Commission on a Gender Equal Economy and is a prize-winning feminist economist. This is another ambitious intervention summarized in its subtle, in its subtitle, which is a call to action. Yeah, not subtle at all, very loud, a call to action. Like the Care Manifesto, it's also entirely re-envisioning what we mean by the economy. And it puts care of the people, well-being, sustainability, and the environment at its center. Now, I strongly recommend everyone who is listening to read not just one, but all of these magnificent, important contributions. And I assure you that when you've done so, you will have an aha moment when you emerge at the other end and feel that you've got new ideas and new tools for thinking of and making, and making a more equal world. So welcome to Madeline Bunting, to Lynn Siegel and Diane Alson. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you and to chair this discussion uh, and the, to the contributions that you've raised. So to begin with, I want to ask each of you briefly to tell us something about why and how you ended up you know, working on this intervention on care. What were your motivations and how did you go about it? And I'll just give you a few minutes each to think about uh, and talk to us about that question. So firstly, over to you, Madeline. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Alpa. So rousing. Um, it's really exhilarating listening to you. Uh, so I would say that I started writing the book for two sets of reasons, really. Um, I had been writing about care as a columnist on The Guardian uh, for nearly 20 years. And indeed, I'd written about it also in a previous book. Um, and again and again, the same issues were coming up as a columnist in different parts of the care economy or care professions. Problems of low pay, financialization, recruitment and retention, crises repeatedly. And so there was a sense that the, um, the care structures of our society were deeply precarious and deeply overstretched. Uh, now, at the same time, I felt all of this very, very personally, very acutely. Uh, when I started writing the book five years ago, I, I had a sense that really if I looked back at what I'd been doing over the previous 20 years, there was the career and then there was the family life and the way in which I had uh, raised three children and um, cared for in all of the myriad ways that we do, family, friends, relatives, parents, children. And I felt while on the one hand that the career um, provoked a degree of respect and status and all the rest of it, this care labour that had been just as intense, just as demanding, uh, was barely acknowledged and uh, it was that disjuncture between the two aspects that I thought there's something sort of seriously um, gone awry where we place so much value on on paid work and so little value on unpaid usually unpaid and in my case unpaid care work um, and, and care labour and um, and yet the care really had been deeply um, thought-provoking, deeply sustaining, uh, uh, represented really a deep engagement in life. So why is it that it got so little recognition? 
Uh, and I decided that what I wanted to do was try and think about a much bigger framing for a set of political and economic and social crises that I was writing about as a writer, and also this sort of personal dimension that care, as you said, had been marginalized and undervalued in a way that was deeply, deeply sort of systematic in our culture and that we were all in some way engaged in that undervaluing. Um, that I myself, as I wrote this book, kept on questioning what I was doing and why. And indeed, a lot of the people that were asking me about the book were also puzzled. Why are you spending so much time on a boring subject? So that I'd absorbed that undervaluing myself. Um, uh, and that's sort of how, how profound and pervasive this undervaluing is. Thank you. Thanks so much, Madeline, for sharing, you know, your personal journey and, and the tensions and contradictions. And, you know, it's so right that we all buy into it. We, we, you know, and that's how pervasive and embedded it is. And so, Lynn, will you tell us something about the Care Collective? I mean, who are you? Why did you come together? And why a manifesto? What, what you know, why, why, why? It could have been a book. I mean, what, what is, why make it a manifesto? Tell us something about your journey, which... I'm sure begins with similar concerns to Madeline as taking us yeah. in a different way. Yes, to, to yes. yes, indeed. Thanks, Alpa. It's lovely to be here with you and Madeline and Diane discussing economies of care. And uh, like Madeline, I feel that really everything I've said and done in some ways connects with care. It's perhaps most evident in my recent books on the pleasures and perils of aging in out of time addressing how best to survive and yet still embrace life as we grow older and more fragile and try to confront the ageism that renders us invisible, our needs perhaps neglected and very much tied in with inequality. Then writing moments, always only moments of collective joy and radical ha happiness, I depicted our need for others to share in our joys, which so easily tumble into loss and sorrows and how we also address that together. But next, I began writing Lean on Me, disavowals of dependency, aiming to attack our neoliberal market-driven rationality with all its aspirational individualistic values, its mantra of personal autonomy, contempt for weakness, encouraging us always to place ourselves first and foremost. Self-care, <laughs> resilience, the order of the day. In stark contrast, I began and remained then with the significance of cherishing our ties to others, understanding our shared vulnerabilities and interdependence throughout our lives. The lessons as I see it of 70s feminism. But then friends decided they also wanted to join me in thinking through all this. And five of us formed the reading group in 27 to discuss care which we aligned with solidarity and um, what we saw as the main needs and crisis of the moment. Um, seeing care along with Joan Tronto's description of caring for, caring with and caring about others and the world, all that enables people to flourish. And the five of us were Andreas Chatsidakis, Catherine Rottenberg, Joe Littler, Jamie Harkham, and we're all, as you said, from separate disciplines, from media to marketing, sociology, literature, and psychosocial studies. 
So we were bringing these different perspectives to our reading. But the more we read on care from Nancy Fraser's Marxist depiction of care as the key crisis of capitalism to Wendy Holway's psychodynamic account of care as the basis of our subjectivity, we quickly got caught up in the urgencies of the moment, reading about the dire state of care, the hundreds of thousands of elderly with very little or no care at all, the daily scandals you'd see in our papers of collapsing care homes, knowing that carers themselves were living in poverty on zero hours contracts with no security at all. And so this is what led us to believe we simply had to mount a call to action. We did play around with doing an anthology with different ways of writing about care, but then we just thought, no, we've got to do more. We want to have a call to action. And that's what led us to write the manifesto to demand that care be placed at the very heart of politics, feeling that even on the left, it was always somehow often a little to the side. It was never at the heart of politics. I think it was in feminism or for many feminists, but on the whole, we were not really listened to. So um, we finished again, as you've said, we finished writing this just before the COVID COVID pandemic swept, swept around the world, which led Verso to speed up its publication. It must be one of its fastest ever publications, I think, because it was clear, you know, it really is urgent for us to think about care. Uh, there are a few tensions between us, given our different backgrounds and, and, you know, writing styles, but nevertheless, the commitment to the urgency of our goal kept us always more or less able to overcome any difficulties by keeping our eyes on that vision that so much was wrong, that perception that so much was wrong and that vision that something different really had to um, come about and come about urgently right now. So that's why we wrote Thank the you. Thanks so much. Um, lots of questions to ask you as, as well as Madeline, but we'll turn to those later. Diane, your report is actually called a call for call to action, you know, a call, a call. Yeah, it's a call to action, isn't it? Uh, and, and so were you aware of Lynn's collective taking place at the same time? Tell us nope. about your... <laughs> <laughs> No, this, 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 re this report came out of a commission on a gender equal economy set up by the Women's Budget Group uh, in 2019. The Women's Budget Group is a, a network of researchers and policy analysts and activists that contribute their time for free, coordinated by a small number of excellent paid staff. And the Women's Budget Group analyzes the gender impact of economic policy of the UK government. So look out for the WBG analysis of the upcoming budget on March the 3rd. Uh, but after doing a lot of work, a critical responses to government economic policy, we decided we want to do something more proactive and set up a commission to investigate what would a gender equal economy look like and how might we get there. So we set up an independent commission comprised of 17 people, 
from outside the women's budget group, most of them, drawn from civil society organizations, academics, business, trade unions, and journalists. And we were also determined not to be London-centric. So we held meetings in Cardiff, Glasgow, Belfast, Sheffield, as well as in London, with women's organizations, with academics, officials, and politicians, getting evidence from them on what were the barriers to a gender equal economy and were governments doing anything to reduce these barriers or to make them worse. Actually, it was very refreshing to go to Scotland and see very different political context, more hopeful political context than you have in London. We adopted an intersectional approach that recognized that different women experienced inequality in different ways compounded by inequalities of race, class, and disability. And we've tried to take that into account in the report. We called for written evidence and commissioned some short briefing papers. And the whole process was managed by Ma uh, Marion Sharples, a women's budget group staff member, who also drafted the commission's report. So special thank you to Marion and to anybody else, any commissioners, anyone else who was involved in this process and who is uh, joined in this uh, webinar. We found not unexpectedly that lots of women said they were overburdened with unpaid care responsibilities and found this to be a major factor in inequality in the labour market. And women called for funding of more and better care services. Women wanted more time free from care, but they also wanted more time to care putting a positive value on care, but finding the time they had available was squeezed. Time was not available for women with few educational qualifications because to get a living income, they needed to work long hours in paid jobs, often working two or three part-time jobs. For women with higher educational qualifications, the time wasn't available because they needed to work long hours to maintain their position in their chosen profession more time was only available by sacrificing income, good conditions of work and promotion prospects. And the same is true for the growing numbers of men who wanted to contribute more time to the care uh, of their children and other family members. So it was clear from these conversations, from the evidence we had, that care paid and unpaid would need to be at the center of our report. We wanted to produce a report that all our diverse commissioners would endorse and that would be useful in building a wide coalition of support among progressive organizations and would help persuade progressive economists that care was just as important as construction in planning for a better economy post-COVID, picking up Lynn's points about how you know, even among progressive people, among economists perhaps in particular, care has just not been seen as a central economic issue. We found that the UK economy as a whole is a careless economy in which the well-being of people and of the planet is subordinated to the pursuit of short-run financial objectives and economic growth. And we thought it would not be possible to achieve gender equality in such an economy, nor to satisfy the demand for time both free from care and time to care. So that's why we focused our report on creating a caring economy. Thank you, Diane. You've so uh, you know wonderfully highlighted some of the problems um, that you know you saw and found uh, uh, in, in in telling us about 
um, about how the report got shaped. And I actually want to ask both Madeline and Lynn uh, about the different problems that they saw or found. I mean, Madeline, you you have this, you know, in, in your wonderful book, you 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 hang out with doctors, you shadow them, you um, you know volunteer yourself as a as a care worker you 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 know you you spent a lot of time investigating touring the country from north to south could you tell us something give us a flavor um of the problems that you found i loved your book for the intimate details the ethnography the, um that you that you highlight alongside you know your little analysis of these words that you you know you draw attention to care and you give us the etymology of it and all pity and, and empathy and dependence and tell us something about the making of this book and the problems you found you know that you wanted to highlight yeah um, well, it, it, it's great that as an anthropologist, the ethnography passed muster, Alpa. <laughs> um, but I, I did have a very, very strong sense as I was starting out that um, the voices of carers themselves are so often missed out, that the experts speak, the, the professionals speak, the politicians speak, but what about the people who are actually doing the care? And so um, I would say a good good chunk of the book really is is the in lengthy interviews that I did with all kinds of carers. Um, and I was very, very interested in trying to th thread the commonalities through very different types of care. So I interviewed uh, the mothers of children with uh, disabilities. I, interviewed, uh, I, I shadowed a GP practice. I shadowed nurses in a hospital. Um, I uh, interviewed social care workers uh, and end of life um, social workers and consultants looking at the end of life care. So what I was really interested to do was one, establish the voices of people. I wanted them to speak. I wanted to hear how they spoke about their work. And then what I wanted to do was try and explore the way we um, divide up care between paid care and unpaid care, between intimate care within the family and uh, professionalized care, between institutionalized care and commercialized care. And so I was I was interested to try and establish, I mean, one of the kind of key driving factors of the book really was, was about definitions. And um, I was looking to, to carers to provide me with their working definition. So the, the, the interviews all started with one question, whether that was the president of the Royal College of Nursing or a social care worker struggling to, to make ends meet. Um, and I, I said, what is care? I mean, it's such an obvious question, uh, but it was fascinating to put that question to people. And one of the things that was so striking was um, the care workers, when I asked them that question, they, they almost invariably said, I, I haven't really got anything to say. I can't talk about my work. You know, I don't, I don't think there's really anything much to say. And then, you know, an hour later, they would say, my God, I never knew I had so much to say. Um, and then another aspect of, uh, I interviewed two healthcare assistants and both young men who had done this work, both done it as young men who now reflecting on it 20 years later, both of them said, it's the first time I've ever talked about this work that I did as a healthcare assistant. Nobody has ever been interested. So there was this sense that outside the kind of feminist and academic circles, which have done a a valiant job in the last 30 years of trying to surface the, the, the complexity and the significance of care. Uh, there is this still this lack of curiosity. What is it? 
and I was thinking if this book could just make people curious and not your, your kind of ready, you know, the ones that are already signed up, the ones who already know about this, but the people that, that, that have had very little experience of care, if I could just get them to think again and to be a lot more curious, because actually I talk about care as an empire. It, it is so vast. It has so many different dimensions and so many different framings of what exactly it is. Uh, and I wanted, um, you know, to, 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 for us to develop some curiosity. And that's why your point, Alpha, about how I, in between each chapter, I landed on a word and I sort of unpacked that word, uh, whether it was empathy or care. You know, where does this word come from? What does the etymology tell us about the cultural associations with that? Um, and that was part of this kind of, this, this driving imperative of let's be curious. Just let's be curious. What happens when somebody is caring for another person? And I came down with a working definition of, of something that runs through almost all care con uh, contexts, and that is presence, attention, and touch. Uh, and those ingredients, I think, are, are at the heart of it. Now, you can add expertise, you can add knowledge, you can add skill. Those are obviously very important in many contexts. But it seems to me that uh, presence, attention and touch are absolutely key. And the other point that I just want to make at this juncture in the conversation is just that I think at the heart of every care economy is a gift economy. That we will obviously and rightly talk about pay. It is a major issue. But as an anthropologist, Alpa, I'm sure you'd be the first to say the significance of, of, a, of a gift that it's always a giving of self care, is always. So the care workers that I came across were very, very aware of that. The way they said good morning to their clients, you know, they may get paid a very little amount of money, but their sense of pride in the quality of the care they were providing was about their sense of how they gave of themselves and how that was appreciated. So there's a reciprocity there. And the care worker would say, I may not get paid much, but, but the, 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 the care recipient, this, this maybe elderly, frail person, this, this child with disabilities, still manages to give something of themselves back. And I think that reciprocity of the care relationship is what we've overlooked and really, really distorted by imposing on it commodification, consumerization, you cannot apply the principles of consumerism to that recipro reciprocal gift economy where people are giving of themselves. And that's my real bugbear. So, you know, I, I, I really challenged various uh, professionals about the consumerization of their language, how they used, like, for example, a director of nursing at a hospital. I said, why do you talk about care as a business? And she looked very taken aback. And I said, it's not a business. The care worker that I've just spent the day with, the healthcare assistant, she told me it wasn't a business. I know she's right. So why are you using the word business? So the healthcare assistant had an insight into care that this enormously professional and very, very expert director of, of, of nursing in the hospital had not recognized. It was a great moment because she, you know, she was like, you've got a point, you're absolutely right. Um, so I'm very, you know, as, as a writer, of course, I'm really, really interested in language. Uh, and I think that the, the way the language of care has slipped into things like delivery, delivery of care packages, 
it drives me insane. It's like somehow they're talking about Amazon or something, that the person who arrives on the doorstep and hands you a package is a bit like a comparable to a care worker who's coming to feed you or wash you. Um, and it's the idea that it's, it's, it's a, a, a transaction over a particular task which has no wider context. There is no form of relationship. So perhaps we can expand, I'm sure Lynn and Diane will both have contributions to make on these ways in which we fundamentally distorted the understanding of care through commodification, consumerization, uh, and, 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 and audit, which is about a breakdown of trust. And I think what emerges out of that is a sense of crisis. So I welcome the sense of urgency that Lynn and Diane are both speaking to, because again and again and again, the people that I talked to who were working in care felt a sense of crisis. They were overloaded, they were exhausted, they were burnt out, they were struggling to recruit, struggling to retain. Thank you, Madeline. It's so fascinating what you say. You know, as an anthropologist, I have, um, uh, I can completely see why, you know, you need to have that kind of deep ethnography, ethnographic approach to get at those voices. Because as you said, people, you know, the people don't themselves value what they're doing, you know, or, or devalue it themselves. So why, should, you know, why would you want to talk about it if you come across as an interview or a questionnaire or, you know, even a, yeah, even a kind of, you know, short interview, you're not going to get at that. You're not going to get at the depth of what it means to care and, uh, you know, all the tensions and contradictions that you lay bare in your book uh, without that approach. And at the same time, you know, you highlight the whole, um, the gift economy aspect of it, you know, um, and you end your book with that. But at the same time, there's a big tension there, isn't there? Because at the same time, you know, the problem is that these people aren't getting paid what they ought to get paid, you know? So how do we reconcile these, the fact that on the one hand, you know, we have to think about care in a separate, we have to think about it in a separate value system almost but at the same time it needs to be valued uh in terms of a monetary value you know i mean but of course it goes back all to the you know wages for housework campaigns and wh whether we ought to uh you know have have wages for housework or not but um you know and i know that lynn has thought so much about these issues uh but uh it would be really great to to think uh, for lynn to have your views in terms of how do we you know reconcile these different kind of value systems what do you think are the problems you you, you know, apart from the ones that Diane and Madeline have already pointed out, uh, it would be really good to have your perspectives. Well, um, yes, before getting to um, how to change things, I will also be discussing this terrible crisis of care. Where to begin is the problem, given how very uncaring our society has become. And it all connects up with what Danny Doyling describes as this time of peak inequality. That is the current conjuncture. So much lack, so much um, <clears throat> poverty, because increasingly over the last four decades since Thatcher and speeded up under the austerity regimes imposed since 2010, we've seen beverages post-war 45 promises simply turned on their head with a lack of care operating at all levels from cradle to grave. So we find parents with less time to care for children, 
battling exorbitant childcare costs, working longer hours in paid work, and the caring load, of course, falling mainly on mothers. Youth services have been all but eradicated, though more needed than ever with knife crimes and more, rising mental anguish at all levels. So there's all that as well as the obvious ongoing calamity of social care, especially for the disabled and for the elderly, the ever-growing number of elderly which has been mounting year on year, producing those scandals I mentioned earlier, but also leading to so much depression and anxiety and worry, especially for home carers. And of course, most of all, for those struggling with poverty as so many are. Now we know the public provision has become increasingly inaccessible with services being dismantled and outsourced often to corporate commodity chains, nowhere near the recipients in need of care or indeed those giving the care. And we know these corporations so often create simply intolerable conditions for their workers. And that's what Madeline finds when she interviews them, insecure, underpaid, zero hour contracts, curtailing continuity of social and nursing care. Madeline describes it, Loach depicted it in the film, sorry, we missed you. But meanwhile, for some tiny few, the 0.1 massive profits have been made from outsourced care in a provision which often knocks, mocks the very name of care with little security for either those being cared for or the carers then unprofitable, strategically over-leveraged care, homes often shut down, leaving poorer parts of the country as care deserts without any care at all. So you'll all know something about the calamities this can create. The sociologist Bev Skeggs wrote about the grotesque experiences she had in the dying years of both her parents trying and failing to negotiate any sort of adequate support from the dual institutional collapse of the NHS and the caring system where they lived up north with her living in London. Indeed, she called the situation a crisis of humanity when despite paying colossal fees for her elderly mother when she was hospitalized in her final um, <clears throat> months of dying, she found that staff still had no time to care, not even to feed her then blind mother in that final illness. Neglect by design was the name of the game, she concluded. Though of course not the design of the carers themselves. Exploited as they are, carers are today mainly, paid carers are today mainly ethnic minority and migrant women often part of a whole global care chain moving from poorer to richer nations, enabling the careers of others, other women and men, even as they are so subject to total exploitation. So this strategic neglect we know is the direct result of that privatization and outsourcing of the welfare state I've mentioned. And the results are seen everywhere, not just in the obvious places like care homes, but in the 2000 plus food banks, 
in another child rendered homeless every eight minutes, in huge workplace stress as well as stress in the home, and in soaring rates of depression across the board. And meanwhile, national health cuts and its partial privatization and the removal of nursing bursaries, the deficits across the care sector, all undermined our health system, which is what we're seeing today. Before COVID, we already had 17,000 hospital beds lost. We had 100,000 NHS staff lost, both nurses and doctors, over the past decade. As Richard Hawkins, the editor of The Lancet, the medical journal notes, Britain was already the sick man of Europe well before COVID. So this is the failure of our economies of care, which is why the main crisis of capitalism today is, as we see it, a crisis of care. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. So uh, eloquent, so articulate. I um, I'm particularly grateful to you for pointing, for highlighting a couple of things. One is drawing attention to Beverly Skaggs' neglect by uh, design, you know, and I want to mention her because we are, you know, we're here because of her. She is the one who actually set up the global economies of care theme at the, at the International Inequalities Institute. Mm -hmm. And it's her kind of legacy that we've inherited and are carrying on right now. So it's really lovely that you mentioned her work uh, and, and, you know, and her contributions there. I'm also really grateful to you to, for mentioning and talking about the whole, you know, global care chains and especially the racialized dimensions to care and you know um uh which you know often gets neglected but is so central to how we must think about uh the problems of care right um and and uh, yeah so one of the things you didn't mention which i really value in in the in the care manifesto is how you've brought the environment centrally to uh, how we think how you know the problems of care and why you know and and how what we do about it and this is something that's also shared by um the women's budget group report you know this is something that is also central to uh to to diane your report diane you already talked about some of the problems you you know you faced in relation to care and why your rep report is important but could you maybe say a couple of words about the environment why have you got the environment in there as well maybe tell our audience something about about that particular aspect well, because sustainability is a, is a critical issue. We can't create caring economies if our, if our whole way of life is under threat from climate crisis, from lack of biodiversity, and uh, our health is jeopardized by pollution. So they're very much linked. We can't really create a caring economy unless we care for the planet as well as for each other. They're, they're totally bound up. And some of the barriers that we face in both caring for each other is also barriers we face in caring for the planet. So let me just pick out three. One is the, the dominance of short-term financial interests in the way that our economies work. Um, not Lynn and Madeleine have referred to this in the, the care sector, in the provision of care services, but it's not just there. 
it permeates, I think, throughout the economy and the ways in which decision making is done by government, by business on how to use resources. It's a short term financial calculus in which the aim is to minimize the financial costs without thinking about the, the hidden costs, the hidden costs from pollution, the hidden costs from degradation of land, the hidden costs from the climate emergency, all of course hidden costs that come back to bite you at some later days when you find, ah, oh, we need more flood defenses or we need some strategy for not having floods uh, so, so very often. There are false economies uh, throughout the economy through this focus on these very short-term cost minimization strategies where the only costs that are taken into account are the ones that immediately show up in the account books that have got, that are immediately marketized, not the costs that are more diverse, that go through the non-market processes of the family, the community, the environment. So there, there was a lot we saw in, in synergy between this challenge to change the way in which decision-making is, is done about the use of resources and to challenge the kind of concepts of efficiency, of productivity, that are in common use by progressive economists, as well as by ones who supported the austerity measures, uh, which have challenges both for creating a society which we can care for one another and for a society in which we can care for the economy. So we really have to unpack those notions of what does productivity mean? Um, and all the kind of points that Madeline was making about the actual nature of the, the, the caring, labor process and the caring relationship. If you bear those in mind and you look at concepts of productivity and efficiency through a care lens, you immediately see you know, how misleading they are, that actually it's regarded as more efficient and more productive if you can care for more people in a, sh in a shorter space of time without any um, uh, concern for the quality of the care and the quality of the, the experience for both the carer and the person receiving the care. So it's a very narrow, short run and full of false economies. And we felt the same kind of logic, the same kind of calculations were also applied to the way in which we use natural resources. And they could also, they also needed to be um, pulled apart and dissipated. And, and in both cases, both the care for people and the care for the environment, decentering economic growth is vital. So that that's not the overwhelming objective of economic policymaking. So it has to be decentered and you have to look more directly at what you want to achieve in terms of well-being and sustainability. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diane. Um, uh, we've got... Um about 10 minutes and I want to ask you all a, a, a last question um, before we open up uh, to the questions from the floor. There's already questions coming in from the floor, but um, I'd like to take the privilege of the chair to ask you that you know question, which you're touching on there, Diane, at the end, but which is the crucial question. You know, what would it mean to put care at the center of the economy and society, how should we rethink care? What would it mean to 
build a caring economy. Madeline, your book is wonderful. At the end, you have a whole chapter on, you know, the future and robots and, you know, the possibilities there, but you stress relationships and the idea of value itself. Please tell us more. Madeline, you're muted. Sorry, we need to unmute yourself. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, First of all, what I was going to say is that um, it can sound a little bit romantic to say that we want, you know, huge amount of change and on all the rest of it. But actually, by the end of my five years of research, I felt really optimistic that there are some very, very powerful and persuasive reasons why change might happen. And that actually has got only stronger because of the COVID crisis. Um, for for reasons that you've already explained, Alpha, I think we've been brought up very brutally and short in front of what is effectively a shortage of care. You know, the fact that there were no nurses to operate the Nightingale Hospital was an absolute, you know, you can you can build as many hospitals as you like. If you don't have the skilled staff to run them, it's absolutely pointless. So I think that the care crisis has been demonstrated very, very clearly to everybody. And I think... Um, there are many people saying that actually the future of employment, uh, care will be essential. Automation is going to wipe out a whole number of jobs. We know that, but what it can't effectively uh, do is is, uh, replace um, human care. And so the chief economist to the Bank of England, in fact, gave a speech a couple of years ago uh, in which he, he said, care is a growing form of employment and, you know, in terms of the, the kind of future employment profile, it's it's really important and we need to invest in care, in, in, in better training, in better status, in better career structures. So I think that actually more and more powerful allies are being recruited to this, that feminists having struggled in this field, and I, I quoted the Women's Budget Group, it's done absolutely fantastic work um, uh, uh, around, you know, the, the kind of power of the sort of economic stimulus of investing in, in care. But I think you can see that really important allies are being recruited. But I think it's not just about money. And I think it's really, really important that we widen this debate. Now, I understand the title of this is about building a caring economy, but I, I'm a little nervous about this emphasis that it's about economics, because it seems to me that it's about it's about everything you know it's it's very hard it's about culture it's about society and certainly it's about design how do we design institutions how do we imagine the kinds of organizations that can really support cultures of care people don't do care on their own i mean that is like the number one rule uh, finding of my whole book it's always grounded in relationships of support and where carers are being cared for so it's a, it's a sort of ripple out effect. And I think one of the greatest challenges right now, actually, just as much as, you know, how do we invest uh, uh, in care is actually to think about how do we design organizations that really inspire care? Because it's, if you look back historically, there have been these extraordinary breakthrough moments when, you know, Florence Nightingale, for example, remarkable figure, deeply con- controversial in all sorts of ways, but she reimagined care and how it could be delivered in a healthcare setting. And we sort of need something of that same ambition and vision to think, okay, what does care look like now? How do we reimagine it as radically as Florence Nightingale did? 
and she used mythology and symbols and ideals and wrapped them up in a totally extraordinary kind of package. Uh, and I think it's it's it, 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 there's something around that kind of reimagining uh, of institutions, and so that we reframe care as not a burden, not a cost, but as Diane says, a form of wealth creation. Thank you, Madeline. That is absolutely visionary, brilliant. And you know, you're completely right to question the title building a caring economy. Because if there's one thing that we, you know, tell all of our students in anthropology is that we cannot separate the economy from society from politics from religion, they are all embedded together. And in fact, the work of imagination has to be absolutely central, right? How we reimagine. And in fact, we need a more visionary agenda than Florence Nightingale, because it can't be focused just on you know, nurses and, and the care sector, as all of you have been pointing out. It's, you know, wider institutions in and of themselves, it's society at large. So thank you so much for, for, for that. Um, Lynn, over to you uh, with the same question. I was um, waiting till this section to talk about um, green politics and climate change, because you said I'd have a little longer. Um, but the first thing I think we need to remember is that care has always been undervalued because it's been seen primarily as women's work, as feminized and falsely seen as unproductive, when in fact we know we'd have no economy at all unless we realized that care is a part of the economy. That's where we have to sit. It is not separate from. So it is a caring economy. We would have no economies without caring. The two are absolutely interlinked. So that is one point. The other point is that we have to definitively reject the repudiation of dependency and see that we're all dependent throughout our lives. It's just the ways in which many are serviced Fit, kept fit and able are viewed through a different lens. So that's, we need to begin from that recognition of shared vulnerabilities and interdependencies, working out how to support the maximum capabilities of everything, which is not ever just a question of self-help, but of complex social support. So our manifesto argues for this new vision of a caring economy with care, at its heart, but also with a more capacious notion of care. For care also embraces all the essential services and social infrastructures that express and enable caring practices of every stripe, from teaching to transport, to all that facilitates our concern for others and life itself. It means nurturing then our capacities to care and enabling those capacities and capabilities in everyone, all that's necessary for human flourishing and to preserve the resources of the world itself, which is why we talk about and call for universal care, which we think we'll have once we make care the ultimate value and everyone able to share in its joys and difficulties supported by a range of flexible, well-funded public resources. So in the manifesto then, we move across various scales, scaling up from the familial to the local, to the national, to the global. We need to expand resources for parenting and domestic care, but we also introduce the notion of promiscuous care, not in the sense of 
fleeting care, but rather knowing that potentially we're all capable of caring, wanting to expand our horizons for caring <clears throat> and where it takes place, not just within the narrow confines of the family. Now, not always the ideal site, however much we might like it to be. Those watching It's a Sin will understand that. We often need to rely on the care of friends and of strangers. So that's what promiscuous care is. But we also need to understand and find support to help people overcome the ambivalence and conflict that the challenges of caring easily generates. It requires time and patience. And it often connects with fears of fragility and dependency and fears of mortality. And this is something that feminists and clinicians have written about, especially in relation to mothering. But at other levels, repairing care is also about rebuilding our community and state resources from the bottom up to enable us to develop and use caring skills and lead meaningful lives. It means a dramatic expansion of public spaces like parks and libraries where not only books, but everyday objects like toys and tools are available to borrow and share a library of things. And we've seen attempts at this, for instance, by Ada Kalau in Barcelona or in Ohio's Cleveland um, <coughs> model in the USA. Here, people like to point to Preston in the Northwest, which has encouraged localism and workers' co-ops after their budgets were slashed, switching its priorities from corporate contractors to invest in local providers and worker-owned cooperatives. So a crucial dimension then is <clears throat> to develop municipal democratic care that can come about from the insourcing, trying to insource, bring back caring provision in-house and other boroughs such as mine in Islington are also working with other councils to try and bring this about despite the 70% cuts that local government has seen trying to invest in housing and the local economy. So we need more cooperative ownership. We also need more alternative economies, which we often saw in places most affected by um, uh, recession, such as in Athens and um, in Greece and in Spain, you know, where there was the development of um, alternatively, uh, alternative economic structures of free shops like Skoros, which has been operating in an occupied space for over 10 years and staffed by volunteers, enabling anyone who enters to give, take, share, or borrow the goods there. And um, those might also involve anything from uh, exchanging clothing to creative writing uh, seminars, always with the emphasis on reciprocity. But then at all levels and finally, caring for each other and the world takes us to the importance of new green New Deal economies, such as Anne Pettifer and so many others have developed, like caring generally they tie in with our <clears throat> recovery from COVID, not just on national levels, but international, while radically shifting our attitude to the environment, taking care of it instead of plundering it for material gain. It's the only way to begin reversing the catastrophic consequences of climate change at present looming so inevitably, it seems, and uh, 
feeding the gloom of our time. So our crisis of care then existed long before COVID, that with more than 100,000 dead here, the highest per capita ratio in the world, it flagrantly underscores all that is so wrong with a political system like ours, refusing to prioritize care for people over profit, even during this pandemic, exposing our desperate need for a new way of living in the world with care at its heart, where we can all enjoy the benefits and difficulties of caring, but knowing that that requires flexibility, imagination, patience, and above all time. Therefore, it requires the shorter working hours some are pushing for. It requires a national care service. It requires, above all, such a range that we need to be demanding in terms of flexible, well-funded public resources that can enable all of us to share in those joys and difficulties of supporting each other and maintaining the world itself. Now, to those of you who are listening, you will understand why I started off saying that this is going to be a radical rethinking of, of our society. Diane, um, I'll give you the last word. There's a lot of brilliant questions coming in, and I do want to open up um, uh, to, to the floor. So if you could tell us about rethinking care and what you'd like to add to what Madeline and uh, Lynn have said to how we center it at the economy and at the heart of the economy and society. Well, in our report, we identify eight practical interconnected steps uh, to try and get us on the path to a caring economy. And many of them intersect with the kind of points that Madeline and Lynn have already made. So let me bring in one that we haven't talked about, which is taxation. In order to realize the, the new imagining and visions and you know, better way of life, we're actually going to need to mobilize resources collectively. So one of the huge problems is that we have a tax system which is regressive and in which um, uh, income from wealth is not taxed in the same way as income from work and in which rich people and rich corporations are able to avoid paying their fair share of the tax. So I think we have to have a new conversation about taxation as taxation as a contribution to our collective life, not as a burden that we try to escape. Uh, so there's quite a lot in our report about that, about a new conversation about taxation. And I think this is absolutely vital for the longer run. In the shorter run, we also need to have a re-envisaging of many aspects of fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, it's good that people like Andy Haldane at the Bank of England have a, a sort of wider vision about what monetary policy uh, might try to achieve, but we've still got a long way to go. There's a big challenge we're going to face over the coming years to whether uh, the government was going to reinstate these very restrictive uh, fiscal policy framework with restrictive targets for government borrowing and reducing the budget deficit. So we have to be prepared to resist that, to say that is not going to support the kind of vision of a caring economy that we've been talking about. So then you, you do have to get a bit into the kind of nitty gritty of what are these rules for fiscal policy? What's the rationale for them? Why should we adopt them? And to have conversations with progressive economists and indeed progressive political parties on the left about that and about how they need to re-envisage 
how a fiscal and monetary policy should be run. If we're going to move to the kind of vision of a better world that articulating so, uh, so well. And I think we can move in this direction if we can mobilize a broad coalition of support that draws on the, the empathetic work of Madeleine and Lynn on the importance of caring human relations and captures people's imagination but also the work of feminist economists to show that it makes economic sense once we adopt a well-being and a sustainability perspective and we decenter these narrow concepts of efficiency, productivity and economic growth. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for yeah, your wonderful ways forward. I'm actually going to be kind of quite devilish and ask you uh, 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 to address a question which is being raised from our audience by multiple people. Um, and I'm going to group several questions together. And uh, the way I see it, this is not framed as such by our, our audience, but um, what I see us needing to do now is think about the dark side of care. Uh, and you know uh, the kind of the consequences of prioritizing care um uh, and, and there's two parts to this i guess one is a series of questions uh, which are raised around the current use of care and the marketization uh, uh, of it of the concept itself um uh which is a question that's raised by emily ridge for example uh, who is a lecturer in english literature at the national university of ireland galway thank you emily for your question you know i wonder she asks if the panel could speak to the simultaneous ways in which care has been co-opted by commercial or corporate entities in more cynical ways. Do you think the undervaluing and commodification of care represents flip sides of the same kind of neoliberal, you know, the same coin she's, um, she's, she's asking. So the very fact that we're looking at care right now might actually be, uh, you know, part of this uh, dark underbelly. Um, uh, so that's, and there's another question by Grace Wilde, which is hinting at similar things, I think, um, the, the, you know, the foster care system, the growing marketization and involvement of private equity in children's care services um uh maybe you, you know you could speak about these this this use of care but then to turn it even even more uh even more to making us think even more uh, more more significantly about this um dark side of care i want to turn to a question by george turner who reminds us of the late david graeber my dear colleague and friend who pointed out that care must always be coupled with freedom to ensure that we do not construct institutions and social relations centered around care as a mere protection from external danger. How, when fighting for a caring economy, do we make sure that we do not obscure the value of collective freedom, you know? Uh, and you, you can, I'm sure we can all understand this, you know, how we are taught to be, you know, the, the people that care most about to us can be maybe the bear say they care the most about us can actually be the ones that are oppressing us at the same time you know how do we how do we protect from 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 that you know um so that's a great question um uh, uh, uh george uh it's also reflected i think in iona sarah lisa chis 
Chase, sorry, I'm not pronouncing your name quite well enough, um, who is also uh, thinking us to think, asking us to think critically about uh, about care. Um, so yes, maybe um, Elizabeth. Uh, yet yeah, several people. Elizabeth Klatz is also thinking about about along the same lines. I think. Um, so please, can we um, can we uh, can we address the dark side of care and and uh, to all the panel? I could say something um, if you like. Uh, right, I think those three things that were pointed to are all crucial. Um, I mean, I did talk about the fear that people have of dependency, of care putting us in touch with our own mortality and potential fragility and so on. And that's one reason people shy away from it as well as things that it's seen as feminine and so on. But, you know, it really is challenging work and, um, or some of it is challenging work, which is exactly why we need resources, you know, for, to support us in the caring work we do as well as more time and so on. And I could elaborate on that, but I won't because others will have more to say. In terms of the um, debasing and corruption of the very uh, word care, which Madeline also says a lot about, in the manifesto, we talk about care washing and what care washing is, is the way in which um, care is really hollowed out of all meaning when places like Amazon tell us, we care, we care. <laughs> We care for our workers who we won't even allow time to be um, and we deliver our packages with care and you know there will be care written on those packages and once you've got that you know there is there is no meaning to the word care once commodified in that way it's just totally you know denuded of meaning in terms of care and freedom well I do think and as you said we have to begin by saying we're never simply individuals. We're always individuals in the world with other people. You know, we're never outside of the social. And once we see ourselves as, as a part of the social, then it seems to me it's precisely that whole contemporary rationale that um, we're here simply for ourselves to look after ourselves for our own personal freedom um, collapses into nonsense because how can we be, um, happy and, and um, <clears throat> have a sense of the meaning of life if we're not really concerned about those around us. So it seems to me being concerned about so those around us is not undermining any sense of freedom, but rather um, enriching what a notion of freedom, a notion indeed of humanity should be about. So that's what I'd say. Thank you, Diane. Yeah, in, in our report, and I think what Madeline and Lynn have also said, there's a lot of emphasis on decommodification of care, of bringing back into public ownership these large financialized providers of social care, for instance. We talk as well in our report about changing procurement processes at local government levels so that to focus on achieving social value rather than least financial cost and developing new partnerships with cooperatives and social enterprises with specialist knowledge of different kinds of care. So I think in all our work, there's a lot of concern with the decommodification of care and the, the rebuilding of the capacities of the public sector to develop and deliver universal, universally accessible 
free at the point of delivery, care services funded by taxation that everybody who needs it and wants it can access, in which the voices of people who need care also play a role in shaping how those services are delivered. We learn an awful lot from disability people working on disability rights about the importance of the voice of people who need care uh, in the shaping of the kind of services uh, and financial support that they want. Um, I think on the issue of the how this plays out in the labour market and in the dreadful kind of care washing that Lynn talked about, we link care with rights and with labour rights in that uh, in that context and talk about you know the way you show a care in the labour market for your workers is to have respect labour rights and to re-strengthen the kind of labour rights uh, that there are, not see rights and care as somehow different and look and, and, and completely unconnected. You can't have a caring labour market without a strong workers' rights. So we talk about that. And that's where we, this, this issue of freedom, that's why we also talk a lot about both the freedom to care and the freedom from care. We need both. We need both, I think. It needs that balancing of um, the freedom to care and the freedom from care. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madeline. I, I'll hand over to you, but I am I am just reminded of your wonderful character. I mean, the, the person who had dementia in your book, you know, Gladys. And, you know, this, what her story, you, you uncovering her story for us tells us about this issue of dependency and, and also, you know, dignity and, and, and independence, you know, because she's got dementia and she's completely dependent on the people who are caring for her, yet you bring out so beautifully the independence that they give her uh, and that she has in this situation of total dependency. I, I'm so curious to know about your reflections on the dark side of care you know George Turner's excellent question on um uh on on yeah on how this doesn't become patronizing and this actually doesn't like remove all our freedoms so Madeline you need to uh, unmute yourself please yeah such rich questions I've been looking through through them as as we've been talking and you know many many good uh, uh um really thought-provoking points coming up I mean the, the thing about Gladys that was so powerful was um that she was dependent on her offspring and grandchildren uh to really still give her a sense of personhood that her dementia was so advanced that she was unable to tell time or days or the only thing she knew was her name. Um, and it was the way in which they continually reminded her of who she had been uh, that, was, that was so extraordinary because it gave that her life dignity and meaning. And I think it links up to what Lynn is saying about our dependence because it was such an extraordinarily graphic um, illustration of how uh, we can be completely dependent. I was very struck by one of the GPs I shadowed, who having worked in, as a GP for something like 30 years, he said, you know, I see everybody come through my surgery of every age in every situation. And I see the young people coming through in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and they have, you know, they're completely fit and healthy, and they have no idea of dependence. It just, you know, they haven't reached that point in their life course yet. 
and they can be very arrogant and commanding and they can tell me that you know their minor health problem needs to be fixed right now and he said i just know that they will change the time will come when they are ill or they you know someone or what their partner is ill and they will suddenly be brought up short against this reality about human vulnerability um and it's it's kind of like how do we how do we get people to that point a bit earlier how is it built into our culture that we understand more about frailty but the other point i wanted to make in response to some of the questions is this really very interesting point about the relationship between care and freedom um, because it seems to me that so often uh, care inevitably involves risk. Care is often very intimate, it often involves a power relationship. And how is that power relationship? As we know, there have been terrible, terrible scandals of the, of the abuse of care. And I think any debate about care has to account for that dark side. Uh, you know, the appalling murders of Dr. Shipman, the GP, who, remember, his patients said he was deeply caring. He had all the language and the manner of somebody who was a carer, and yet he was murdering hundreds of his patients. So being caring is, is not just about getting the body language right. Uh, and I think one of the things that has really dogged care over the last 20, 25 years, the Shipman case being a really important kind of waking up moment, is how do you manage risk within the context of care? And what, what we've done is we've gone down the line of audit. We want everything audited, constantly inspected. Um, uh, and what I think is that is that we need to sort of perhaps find other ways of, of thinking about that. I mean, one of the ways that I found very, very powerful in the GP surgery I worked in, I shadowed, sorry, I didn't work in it, I shadowed, is that in every single surgery, at the end of the surgery, all the doctors talked to each other about the cases that had come through their surgery that morning. So they would rattle off 12 cases. This is what I did, this is what they said. And there was a constant checking process going on between the team and they did it as a team process. Now that kind of feedback, that kind of reflective process where you're pooling knowledge in a team and somebody's saying, well, you saw the, the daughter, but I saw the mother last week. Could that mean the family needs this or needs that? Now, most GP surgeries don't have the spare capacity to do that kind of reflective evaluation of their work. But I, they, what they argued was that was the factor that made their work so effective and safe. So how do we build into care services those kinds of reflective processes which build teams? What really horrified me in social care work is how isolated the workers often are. They're going from house to house if they're doing domiciliary care and they don't have any sense of a team. If they're lucky, they've got a sympathetic manager on the end of a phone, but chances are that she's, over, she's and it is usually she, she's too busy and she hasn't got the time. So the care workers I were talking to, was talking to often had to deal with really challenging situations with absolutely no backup and support. So that goes back to the point that I made earlier about Good care is always about teams and how those teams work together, how effectively they work. And it seems to me that's our best guard against abuse. Mm. So, uh, um, freedom, yeah, 
sorry i've got a, i've grouped a few questions into one last question that i'd love you all to 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 address um so there's 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 several questions which are all about a call to action you know how, how do we take action jess mcgregor as a director of adult social care asking about the panel's views on opportunities available to local government despite austerity to take action elizabeth Platzer also talking about the key levers um towards prioritizing care we've got amy clark talking about decolonizing uh care uh how do we do it um we've got uh yeah um asha hurton as well uh so various different questions around a call to action and rather than answer them these in general terms i would be really grateful to end on a question which basically invites you to tell us about how your books and your report and your manifesto are being used what is happening with them how are you impacting change with them right now it might be too early to tell but i'm sure there has been take up already and things are happening already what is the movement that is building behind your wonderful interventions tell us tell us something about that please um yeah whoever would like to go first if you want to help up thank you yeah we've got 10 minutes so if you could take maybe a couple of minutes uh each thank you um well, you, you listed a lot of very, very interesting questions and, um, and then you added one of your own in at the end, which is to um, give some sense of how uh, we're leading a movement or provoking a movement. Anyway, first of all, I, I feel like I need to be really humble and just say, you know, as, as, a, as a writer, you, you know, you hope you, it's, I always think books are like messages in bottles, you know, you send them out and you hope they land somewhere. Um, but whether this will trigger a movement, goodness knows. Um, but there are two uh, um, encounters that I've had in the last six months, since the book, four months since the book came out, which have given me heart. And, and I'm only talking about two, okay? So I'm not talking about my book has launched a movement. Um, but, uh, but I was very, very struck. And one of them was um, a very senior policymaker who has worked in uh, the Labour government and... Um, runs a you know big organization now um, he's uh, I don't really want to use his name although there is a podcast actually he interviewed me um, so yes I can use his name Matthew Taylor at the Royal Society of Art yeah yeah well he said uh, that he had never there he is in his early 60s probably he had never considered that he would be prepared to care provide care for somebody else and that by reading my book he had completely changed his perspective to come to the point where he felt that to one day when he was in a situation where he had to provide care for somebody, he would not see it as something to farm out to somebody to be, who he could pay, but he would see it as a, a, a hugely significant experience of being a human being and that it held potential for learning and for understanding more about himself and more about his relationship. And I, I kind of felt one, it, you know, it's a man saying that. It's a man realizing that when he had never done so before. And a man who's kind of been so busy working that care has probably, you know, be, been something that he hasn't been able to give a huge amount of attention to. And then last week I had an email from somebody who lives in Dublin. And he said he's caring for his wife and has been now for 15 years with very, very advanced dementia. She's now nonverbal. And he said, I can only get to read a few of your pages few pages of your book every day but he said I can't thank you enough for how it's affirmed me 
intellectually and in terms of what I've decided to do with my life over the last 15 years caring for my wife. And he, he then went on to quote um, uh, Seamus Heaney and he said, poetry uh, is the, um, the art of giving tongue to other people's silences. And uh, he said, my, my book had felt like that to him, that I had articulated what he was learning, looking after his wife, and he was grateful. And as far as, I, as I'm concerned, as a writer, you know, I, I would hope that, that the message reaches many, many more people. But the fact that it reached him in Dublin makes my five years of work valuable. Thank you, Thank you so much, Madeline. <laughs> gives us all hope in our writing and <laughs> the audiences that we could hopefully reach. Diane? I think the answer, the answer to the question you posed, Alpa, also depends on, on where you're standing. So I look at members of the Commission who are in Scotland and the very, very different political opportunities they have there and the way that they've been able to take the work of the Commission uh, into initiatives of the Scottish Government uh, with uh, women's organisations in Scotland, but the, the receptivity of the government and in Wales is so different from the receptivity of the government in London at the moment. So I think you have a, can have different ways of engaging and, and possibilities of influencing people depending on what the political opportunities are in your specific context. So I have to say, when it comes to London and the UK government, we haven't thought that our report is actually going to have much impact on them. One or two backbench MPs in the Conservative Party have been supportive and interested. Um, but on the whole, there we're working much more to try and influence the Labour Party and other progressive think tanks. Progressive think tanks, we're thinking a lot about what kind of policy should be developed for a post-COVID, better post-COVID economy, but you aren't thinking of this in terms of uh, developing a caring economy. Uh, so, so and outreach to journalists and getting articles in papers and trying to change the climate of opinion a bit, but without the same hope that they have in Scotland of being able to influence policy immediately. So I think in for the U, at the UK level, it's a longer game you have to play which all of these these building up of these the individuals who get different realizations and who will hopefully then be supportive of changes in policy that would support the kind of new imagination that they've got um, the the working your way through the kind of progressive institutions one by one by having seminars with them and saying well yes you've done a very interesting report on this but look we haven't said anything uh, in this about care and that goes actually for some of the work on the green new deal as well Anne Pettifer was one of our commissioners and so we had very fruitful conversations there but some of the work on the green new deal hasn't at all connected with care issues so I think it's a strategy of of what kind of coalitions you can build, what kind of allies you can engage with, what, how you can move the conversation a little bit further forward. But having, I think at the UK level, having to have a longer perspective than you can have, you cannot get the kind of more immediate gains that you might be able to get in, in Scotland and Wales, where, where the governments have already embraced a well-being approach 
I mean, they're also concerned about economic growth, but at least they've started to think in a different kind of way about what the economy consists of and how are they going to develop economic policy. We don't see that yet at the Treasury. Um, what I have to say, actually, um, is more positive and more immediate. I mean, first of all, I've spoken at lots and lots of Labour Party wards and constituencies, and there people are really interested in what they can do now. There are councillors there, you know, those interested in Preston, listening to people coming from other um, uh, local uh, areas, saying what they're doing and what they can do. So that's been important also there and elsewhere. I've seen carers actually taking action to improve their conditions, both their pay and their working conditions. For instance, um, many of them are connected up with the United Workers of the World and some of them are out on strike. They've just actually won various things at UCL and other places. But in the um, Sage Nursing Home in Golders Green, I think they're still on strike, but they're going around the country talking about their conditions, talking why they need to change, you know, not just to make their in to get rid of their in-work poverty and make their own lives better, but so they can make the lives of others uh, better. Also internationally, actually, we have talked a lot. We've talked to Naomi Klein and others in the LEAP Manifesto, to other NGOs that, that have contacted us. We haven't contacted them. They've contacted us. I'm talking tomorrow somewhere somewhere in the US. And I mean, many people actually are asking for ideas globally. And of course, we're very happy to contribute. Performance artists, we've, we've talked many places um, where there are performance artists wanting to make, or already making, sorry, we learned from them, already making their artwork more relevant to caring. That's what they want to actually be shifting the sort of cultural work they do to engage with caring and, of course, with climate change and, and green activities. And then the whole question of mental health is coming up everywhere, it seems to me. And, you know, with um, uh, all, particularly those engaged in mutual aid in my area, such as Islington, but elsewhere, you know, how do we deal with the misery of everyday life. And one way, of course, to deal with the misery of everyday life is to try and engage our lives more with others and certainly raising issues of care. So I do, I actually do feel that we're having a more immediate impact. I mean, how you change this wretched national government we've yeah. got, I don't know, but at other levels, we <laughs> love that. We have an immediate impact with, with people in the Labour Party and the SNP. But I mean, they're not the ones who control the purse strings in London. Well, we'll have to make sure they do. Thank you, thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Diane. It's marvelous. It's so wonderful to end on this incredibly hopeful note. You know, I love the story of Ireland and Seamus Heaney being recounted to you, Madeline. You know, it's the ideas you're spreading. You know, um, and you're spreading them through multiple means, talking to MPs, talking to performance artists. You know, it's it it is to me. It appears to be a mo movement that's forming around all of your work that's building on so much before of course you know and one that I hope we've been able to take forward in some way at this event thank you everybody for listening in for all the people that have joined us I'm sorry we haven't taken every single question but I hope we've covered a whole 
great range. Please come read these marvelous books, The Labors of Love by Madeline Bunting, this magnificent report by the Women's Budget Group uh, and the Care Manifesto by the Care Collective. Um, thank you so much to Madeline, to Lynn, uh, and of course, uh, to Diane for joining us uh, this evening. Um, thank you very much everybody and all the backstage work that has gone into this event from the LSC. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alpha, for hosting Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Stay well, everybody. Stay well, Diane. Yes, and you too, and you too. And Madeline. <laughs> and Alpha. <laughs>